Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from lunchtimemoviereview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to LTMR Hindsight, the lunchtime movie review special episode where we don't review a specific movie, but a specific category of films uh, that we don't normally have a whole lot of time to talk about in our podcast. And for this Hindsight, we are going to review our top five John Hughes films. And these will be films that he either wrote, directed, produced, or dedicated to his personal little bitch, the city of Chicago, Illinois, which was, I think, everything. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah. I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Chad. G'day, I'm Shane. And, you know, as I was going through these lists, I, there was very few that I had uh, never seen before. Um, were there were there any glaring uh, films in, in the list of his that you guys hadn't seen? Or were you, you were surprised that he did it? I didn't remember him doing Four Keeps uh, for whatever reason. I seen the movie a couple of times, but I didn't realize he was a uh, part of it when I first watched it or even into today when I was putting the list together. Uh, I, I'd seen everything he'd done. Uh, although what you just said, Chad, I didn't know he had something to do with for keeps, but everything he's written or produced, except for the early days where he was writing for television, but from Mr. Mum onwards, mm-hmm. I had seen everything. And then from Breakfast Club onwards, I'd seen everything in a cinema as well. I'd forgotten that he did Mr. Mom. It's a movie that I have not seen in a very long time. Yeah, he did the film. And I think there was a, a TV series spinoff that failed, but he had yeah, a little I bit to do I think it was very that. short-lived. It was. Well, with that, uh, Chad, what is your number five John Hughes film? Okay, my number five John Hughes film is one he wrote and directed, and that is Sixteen Candles. Where's my briefcase? Where'd you leave it? Don't be a smartass. Hey, I'll be a dumbass. You are a Okay. Okay, where's Sam? Where's my briefcase? Sam! Love me, Brenda. Hey, birth defect! You missed breakfast again. Wasn't my idea to give her her own phone line. I don't have my own phone line. Mike, grab a donut. It's small, it's brown, it's made of leather. It has my initials on it, but I believe that's it. Don't forget, the grandparents are coming this afternoon. Are we still having dinner with the rice checks? Riz checks, 8 o'clock at the club. Oh, and you better learn their names as of tomorrow, their family. That's a lovely thought. Mm. When it comes your turn to get married, do me a favor. Who'd marry her? Mr. T. Oh, I'm sorry. You'll have to buy lunch today. I didn't have time to fix your carrots. Yeah, well, she's only eating carrots to increase the size of her breasts. Mr. You had better shape up or you will miss your sister's wedding. Promise? Now, don't give me that pouty look of yours. You can eat your carrots when you get home. That's it? You don't have anything else to say to me today? What would you like me to say, Sam? Come on now, honey, you're gonna miss the bus. Have a good day. I can't believe this. They fucking forgot my birthday. I always said if you took Molly Ringwald's character, Samantha, out of this film, I would still love it. Sam is fundamentally just the axis and everything great about this film revolves around. It's a perfect 1980s film. Um, like, for example, nerds uh, placing bets for floppy disks. Um, that just says 1980s right there. Um, to me, Anthony Michael Hall as Farmer Ted or the Geek, whatever you want to call him, was just absolutely hilarious. Um, a very relatable character for that time. Uh, Getty Wantanabe's Long Duck Dong is just comedy gold throughout that whole movie. Not and racist always, at all these days, is it? Well, but that's just the thing. I always said it was perfectly brought to life because it could have been very, very cartoonish, which, yes, it was, but it could have been even more cartoonish and cringeworthy. 
But the, to me, there's so much fun in this movie, and you almost forget that it's basically a chick flick. I don't know if it's exactly a chick flick, but yeah, I can I hear what you're saying. I love Sixteen Candles, and I agree it can be for guys. Well, you know, it's funny you say that, Chad, because uh, Shane T didn't want to do this podcast because he's never really been into John Hughes, and he said that he's always felt that John Hughes films are just pretty much made for girls. Yeah, I think uh, my first impression of this movie is that's what it was made for, was like a teenage girl type movie, but the more you get into it and you see the other characters like I was talking about, like uh, Ted the Geek and Wong Duck Dong and Jake and everybody, you sort of appreciate those other characters, and it sort of takes the chick flick element out of it, and it's just a great comedy. Um, What is your number five, Shane? Uh, I might shock a few people, but I'm going to put Ferris Bueller's Day Off as my number five. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Uh-huh. Last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed. Thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. I, I really love it, don't get me wrong. It's one of the hardest things to do for me because growing up with John Hughes, he kind of influenced a lot of my movie going uh, as a kid, which turned into a career, of course. But I've seen it so many times and... Love it, but I saw it on the big screen not that long ago after a gap. And as much as all the memories come rolling back, and you know, word for word, scene for scene, it's just one of those films. But I don't know, it, it lacked a little bit of something for me. And I, I can hear the John Hughes fans out there who are listening just crawling up the wall in disgust. But I'm not saying I don't like it, I love it. I love all these films, and it was really hard to categorize. But Ferris Bueller's Day Off doesn't hold up for me personally as much as it does some of these other films. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I mean, I still, I saw recently myself, and it, there are moments that don't hold up as well as they used to, but I think uh, the fundamental principle behind the movie, like kids enjoying a day off when they're seniors in high school and getting into trouble and trying to fight the authority and blah, 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 uh, to me, that's always going to be what makes this film great. And I think everybody, every character in it is just fabulous. I love the Charlie Sheen cameo. The soundtrack's great, which was never available, but I believe recently it was available or made available online. And it, it is a timeless movie. I mean, the fact that the Beatles have let a song you know, go on the soundtrack is pretty rare because they don't allow their music to go on just anything. And it was a personal thing for John Hughes, as a lot of his movies were. Matthew Broderick is, you couldn't imagine anyone else in that role. The movie, you know, John Hughes movies get referenced in a lot of other movies, and I, and I want to talk about that later. But, I mean, even Deadpool lampooned it at the end of that movie. So, you know, it is a classic, don't get me wrong, but it just doesn't quite, when I was watching it, I'm like, hang on, uh, am I, what am I missing as an older guy? But, yeah, it's my number five. Now, my number five is, it was hard to pick my number four and five because I could have swapped them. But um, actually, my whole top five is pretty close anyway. But uh, my number five was National Lampoon's Vacation. First one's here. But we're so far away, Clark. Right, right. And at the end of the day, when the lot's all full and everybody's fighting to get out of here, we'll be the first ones out too, right? Why? Because we're the Griswolds. Come on, I'll race you.
Sorry, folks, we're closed for two weeks to clean and repair America's favorite family fun park. Sorry. <laughs> and um, I, this is probably one of my biggest uh, HBO Loop summer films um, that I watched over and over and over. And it doesn't get, uh, um, it, it's to this day, it doesn't get old for me. And uh, I can still quote all of the, all of the lines. Um, I think that uh, this is maybe uh, some of the, the later films might have tainted uh, my impression of this film over the years, which is probably why it ended up coming in at number five. But it's still a great, great movie. I agree very much. And yeah, I, I'm with you. All my top five are very, very close together. Um, but yeah, this is definitely one of them that I know he just wrote the short story for and the screenplay for, but it's, it's just a timeless classic. It certainly is. And he had something to do with the sequels. And of course they're pretty good, especially Christmas vacation, but national lampoons vacation is something that is going to resonate for years and years and years. It already has, and it will continue to do that. It's so funny and people just relate to it. Laurie's number five is The Breakfast Club. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are. This is this a test? And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. Uh, yeah, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me, because... Sit down, Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. And I think we'll save uh, comments for that later because I'm sure some of, some of us will have that on our list to talk about then. Jason has uh, given us a list, and uh, his number five is Uncle Buck, the John Candy classic. Hello. Shanice? Honey? Honey, I have some bad news. Let me guess. You are not coming into work in the morning. Just l let... Get... No, but... You don't... Would you just... Let me... Give me... Let me get the... Let me get... You're not... Give me a... Oh. Goodbye. When you guys think of Uncle Buck, do you think of it as a um, as a John Candy film, or do you think of it as a Macaulay Culkin uh, vehicle? Uh, for me, it's John Candy all the way. I mean, yeah, it was the introduction to Macaulay Culkin, but it, to me, it's always going to be John Candy in that movie. He just he's the centerpiece throughout the whole thing, and it's sort of like I was talking about with Sixteen Candles. Everything else that's cool about Uncle Buck revolves around John Candy, so um, yeah, he's a centerpiece for me. He's the biggest dick uncle you you'll ever see in a movie, I think, but and still love him. Oh God, yeah, yep. The way his relationship with his oldest niece was one of the more realistic relationships I've seen in a movie at that point in time. It's just weird how she was sort of like the true teenager, and he was sort of like the true rebel adult if you will and didn't want to follow the rules but they were able to learn from each other i see it as a bit of both a bit of there's so much john hughes isms in there if you want to call it that but it is it all revolves around john candy and it's a bit like what you were saying about vacation movies you can pick pick scenes from it and just laugh by thinking of them when he walks into that party and you know he's getting his niece who's just about to maybe lose her virginity or something and what he does in that, that scene. And then just the whole going to the school and remembering he's got a cigar in his mouth and he's trying to put it, you know, hide it and eat it. 
things like that uh, resonate into me to remember John Candy. He was just so good and he sadly missed. Him trying to pee in the little uh, elementary school urinals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and his car, you know, his car just does that massive backfire and everyone holds their ears. It's just funny. So many little things like that. And John Hughes does that in all his films. There's so many little incon- inconceivable things that you're not looking for, but that then they happen. Uh, Patrick's number five is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Adams here. Adam Lee here. Adamowski. Adamson here. Adler here. Anderson. Anderson. Here. Bueller. 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 Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. And Patrick's actually written a little blurb for us, so I'll just uh, read each of his. The last film of John Hughes's heyday before he went with a few more serious films and long before he sold out to the Home Alone Kitty Fair. Anyone who grew up in the 80s saw this film. This film, along with its more serious brother and sister sick films, 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club, spoke to a generation of young teenagers who didn't see themselves in the common teen films that were being made at the time, i.e. The Wildlife, My Tutor, I never liked that movie, um, or any other <laughs> random teen sex film. Uh, but unlike uh, Candies and Club, this film was just a fun ride. Although the film touches on some teen issues, it doesn't roll in them like the other films do with memorable characters and even more memorable dialogue. This film even made Republican nutjob Ben Stein and pedophile Jeffrey Jones entertaining characters. Um, Chad, what is your number four? Okay, Chris, my number four is a movie that John Hughes produced and wrote, and it is Home Alone. I took a shower washing every body part with actual soap, including all my major crevices, including in between my toes and in my belly button, which I never did before but sort of enjoyed. I washed my hair with adult formula shampoo and used cream rinse for that just wash shine. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. Home Alone is a film that I consider just one of those great, fun films. Hughes was able to take a simple scenario that has to run through the minds of every child and every parent alive, which is accidentally abandoning your child or accidentally being abandoned by your parent, and created a magical comedy adventure for the ages. The director, Christopher Columbus, as I call him, or Chris Columbus, um, and the stellar (laughs) cast, which as we talked about, featured Macaulay Culkin and Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, made the most of this material and created what I consider a true family classic. I think it kind of forever typecast Joe Pesci um, in that type of role, though. I mean, he was pretty close with it with uh, with Goodfellas, but, yeah. um, but I think this is the one that solidified him playing those type characters. Yeah, that's a good point, because I always thought... Uh, the great middle ground is if you ever saw him in Easy Money as Rodney Dangerfield's uh, best friend, that was the type of role that the guy should have had. But I agree, he didn't. He either had the mafia guy like in Goodfellas or Casino, or he had this scoundrel like you see in Home Alone. Well, up until that point, too, I think all these movies were released by Universal and Paramount. And then he sort of switched alliances, wrote the uh, screenplay for Home Alone. Chris Columbus uh, directed it, of course, but it was a bit selling out for what we've known Johnny Hughes to do before that. But it was that that's fine. It was a sleeper hit. I don't think 20th Century Fox's studio realized it was going to be so huge. They, they dumped it at the end of the year for release, and uh, it 
it just went off. So I don't think they expected it to do as well as it did. And obviously there was three sequels to it. What do you, what do you think of the sequels, Chad? Um, the second one, I remember watching and enjoying the third one. I don't really remember very much of, to be honest with you. And there was a fourth one. But oh, the third no. one, yeah, there was in 2002. The uh, third one had a young Scarlett Johansson in it, by the way. Oh, wow. What's, I like both the first and second ones, though. I don't. I think I only saw the, uh, the first one. I don't recall seeing any of the others. He was in New York for the second one, mm. struggling to... And Tim Curry was the concierge, but... Uh, yeah, no, I agree, Chad. They're great films and funny, but so basic. He just made it work. Yeah, exactly. And that's just any. I'm always one of those. If you can take a movie or a premise or a storyline that's very simple, cast it well, direct it well, shoot it well, it doesn't have to have a lot of glitz and glamour to it. Just make it quality, and it's going to be a very quality film, and people will enjoy it. Because, yeah, it's it's actually a pretty silly storyline that's not terribly plausible. But it, it, it doesn't really matter because it's still entertaining for the whole uh, hour and a half, two hours, whatever it was. If he, like, if he wasn't getting on the plane, wouldn't they make announcements uh, out loud, you know, where he was? And then the family would hear that? Or does, did, didn't that happen then? Uh, they probably did. I'm just assuming that um, they, for the plot of the movie, they just wanted to say that the parents and everybody forgot about him altogether. Yep. Yeah, because they definitely would have tried to account for all the tickets. Yep. That's that's what I thought, yeah. Right. It would have been a security issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's a thought I just had. Uh, could we consider Uncle Buck an audition for... Home Alone for Macaulay Culkin? Well, it definitely was, because I'm pretty sure from memory John Hughes wanted Macaulay Culkin, but Christopher Columbus, or Chris Columbus, said I uh, wanted to actually audition for the kids, but then in the end decided on Macaulay. But it was a bit of an audition, yeah, because I think Macaulay's up to the challenge in Uncle Buck against John Candy. Their chemistry was amusing. Yeah, that one scene where they went back and forth with each other in the, yeah. I believe it was the kitchen. I mean, with the questions, awesome. what's your record? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is one of the most memorable scenes in that movie. So, I mean, the kid did great in Uncle Buck. I'm glad he got rewarded with the um, Home Alone franchise. With all of his life turmoil after it, I'm not sure if he was, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a bit of a shame. He he made like Richie Rich and a few getting even with dad, those movies afterwards, but it was when he got older and he's actually got siblings, he's got brothers that are acting in quite good well known movies now. Not not so Macaulay, but he's got brothers that do. Karen Culkin in um Scott Pilgrim versus the World was pretty damn good. Yeah, there's a great example. Exactly. Uh Shane, what's your number four? Uh, my number four is the 1988 film, She's Having a Baby. My inability to impregnate Christy was blamed on tight shorts, having something to do with my body temperature. Seemed rather flimsy to me. To go through the hell of a fertility check and discover that my preference in undergarments was to blame seemed as silly and pointless as everything else about my life. Uh, it's disregarded by many uh, as either a chick flick or a boring romance or both, but it's not. I, I really like Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth McGovern as newlyweds who can't get pregnant, so both sets of parents get involved. Uh, there's a young Alec Baldwin in it, one of his first films. Holland Taylor is in it. I really like her as an actress too. She pops up in a lot of things. Uh, it's funny, sad, and I used to watch this again and again and again on VHS loop when I was a kid and even to this day I put it on every now and then the soundtrack's great uh it has a really beautiful sad if, you, if anyone who's ever had a child will know and relate to this movie I think and especially the end when they see their baby for the first time because there's a twist without giving too much away 
for people who may not have seen it, there is a bit of a twist in it. Um, Edie McClurg is in it as well, and she's in a lot of John Hughes movies. Of course, Paul Gleason, who played the uh, principal in Breakfast Club, is in it. So there's a lot to like in this film. There's musical sequences of all the uh, suburban neighbours all mowing in the same time together, little things like that. And it's funny. I think Kevin Bacon's got great comic timing. Probably not for everyone, this movie, but don't let the title put you off. She's having a baby. There's a lot more to it than that. But anyone who has had a baby or is a young couple getting together, it's worth seeing. I loved it. Yeah, that's one of those movies I probably haven't seen since right after it came out, probably hit VHS and everything. So I'll have to say I'll have to go back and watch it again now since I'm older and have a little one in my life it's i probably will appreciate it a lot more because i don't remember a whole lot about it yeah, yeah i remember it, i remember seeing it come out and um for, for whatever reason i just have never seen it it's not like it was one that i was really wanting to see but it's not something that i that i would it's not necessarily a film i wouldn't see either uh, it, it's great and there's a there's a scene you know how uh, in ferris bueller while the credits are going you see that scene that whole long extended scene of uh, rooney getting on the bus and all and that while the credits are on well the same thing happens here they get a whole lot of a-list celebrities of the time in the 80s so you're going to see some people here you haven't seen for a while or people that you're just going to go oh wow uh saying baby names and it's funny. It's really funny. They're all giving their own baby names and they're stupid ones. Of course, Bill Murray and Steve Martin are all there. And it's worth seeing just for that even. But there's so many nice moments in this film. You, I highly recommend it. She's having a baby. And you haven't seen it, Chris. That's an example I said it when I was opening, that it, a lot of people just disregard it or don't know about it. It's worth revisiting soon. And I always thought it was one of the... I don't want to use the word controversial, but it's the only one that's coming to mind. Uh, controversial movies that Hughes did because everybody thought he was transitioning out of the teen movies and into the adult movies. And just what I remember about it, that was the critics were a little bit harsher on him because they were used to one type of movie and he went in a totally different direction. Yeah, exactly. That's it. They, they weren't ready for it. And I think that's why, I mean, I, I loved it at the time I saw it in the cinema. Uh, it didn't do well, but I did was lucky enough to see it in the cinema. And it didn't. It got a bit of extra traction when it came out on VHS, but I think it's only now when people are re rediscovering the John Hughes movies that they might appreciate it more. But at the time, it was dismissed, and it still is to some point, but I can't recommend it enough. Even the soundtrack and everything's good about it. It's different. But that's, you know, I don't think people were ready for the John Hughes going this way. Yeah, I think um, I saw The Great Outdoors that year instead. Yeah, well, I'll get to that later. I love that film. It's hilarious. Okay, my number four is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ed Rooney. Ed, this is George Peterson. How are you today, sir? Well, we've had a bit of bad luck this morning, as you may have heard. Yeah, I heard, and oh, I'm all broken up. Boy, what a blow. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's been a tough morning, and uh, we've got a lot of family business to take care of, so if you wouldn't mind excusing Sloan, I'd uh, appreciate it. Well, uh, sure, yo, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you, uh, you, you just produce a corpse, and uh, I'll release Sloan. I want to see this dead grandmother firsthand. It's all right, Grace. It's Ferris Bueller, a little twerp. I'm going to set a trap and let him fall right into it. Uh, uh, Ed, I'm, I'm sorry. Did, did you say you wanted to see a body? Yeah, that's right. Just uh, roll her old bones on over here and I'll dig up your daughter. You know that school <laughs> policy. Oh? Uh, was this your mother? Uh, no, my wife's mother. Ed Rooney's office. Hi, this is Ferris Bueller. Can I speak to Mr. Rooney, please? Thank you. Uh, hold. I'll tell you what, dipshit. You don't like my policies, you can just come on down here and smooch my big old white butt. Cat! Pucker up, buttercup. What? Ferris Bueller's online, too. 
I wasn't really sure if I, you know, like I said, if this would be number four or number five. Um, there, that and Vacation are both films that I watched immensely back in the day. Um, and uh, maybe even a little bit more than my, my top three. Um, but uh, to me, this is just a film that never gets old. Can't disagree with you. I've always said it sort of is, and I said it earlier, it's sort of like a foundation for life of, you know, you just want to live life to the fullest, have fun, and be a rebellious teenager who's always fighting authority. And this came out uh, in my uh, freshman year of high school, so it was a very good time, so. Um, Lori's number four, and I'm actually surprised it's not a little bit higher, but Lori's number four is Pretty in Pink. Which she uh, reviewed with us on another Lunchtime Movie Review. Why haven't you called me? Oh, I got nailed for the stable thing. I guess the groom's house is against club rules. I called you three times and I left messages. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't get them. My family, they're very responsible about that stuff, you know? I waited for you this morning. Yeah, where? Parking lot. I saw you and I thought that you saw me. No. What about prom, Blaine? Andy, I'm having a bad day. Can we talk later? No. What about prom? Come on, why don't we just meet after school? No! What about prom? Andy, come on. Just say it. What? Just say it. I want to hear you say it. Andy, please, all right? I want to hear you say it. A month ago, I asked somebody else and I forgot. You're a liar! You're a filthy fucking no go liar! You didn't have the guts to tell me the truth! Well, that is a surprise for Laurie. Yeah, I I would have thought that uh, that uh, it would be higher. I know that she uh, liked it a lot in the podcast, but uh, yeah. I know my girlfriend's a huge John Hughes fan, and that's her favorite movie. And, uh, our little girl Molly, that's who she's named after is Molly Ringwald. So that's she just fell in love with uh Molly Ringwald and Pretty in Pink and has been a huge fan since. I think between that and Sixteen Candles, that's where you might get that John Hughes writes movies for girls, even though um I don't necessarily agree with that either. I think he, he's written a lot for different types of personalities over his over the years that he wrote his films. Very true. There's a lot of background to that movie too. I, I don't know if any of you have it on your list, but uh, it's they changed the ending. There was problems during the the filming. Uh, it was Molly Ringwald's last film with John Hughes, of course. Um, they were, their relationship wasn't getting getting very well along back then, I believe. So I love it too. And the soundtrack has got In Excess on it, which is an Australian band, of course. But, uh, yeah, no, I love it, too. I mean, if that, someone else brings it up, we can talk about it longer. But uh, I'm surprised Laurie didn't have it higher. Yeah, and that alternate ending, if they would have put it on there, would have sucked, I think. Yep. Oh, definitely. Because Way too Hollywood. I, I, I'm, I'm of, the, uh, of the belief that Ducky was uh, in the closet in that film, and he didn't know it. But uh, John Cryer insists that he was, that that character was not, so... <laughs> well, he does get like a bit of a nod from Buffy at the end of it. <laughs> so that'd change him, even if he was, I think. Mm-hmm. Christy, oh. Christy, Christy Swanson, sorry. I'm probably the only one of the opinion that she should have walked off on her own and didn't pick either of the douchebags, in my opinion. Well, the the one that she ended up with wasn't really that great of a guy, I didn't think either. So. No, that's, that's the problem, yeah. yeah. No, definitely not. And, I mean... I know that it's he was bald when they filmed that extra scene at the end, and that's why that's a long shot. And if you look closely, it's a wig. I mean, that that's pretty well commonly known now, but I never knew that back in the day, but now I watch it now. I just can't get over the wig that Andrew McCarthy's wearing at the end. Why was he bald? Because he, he, he was bald in real life or for a movie? Well, no, they were filming, uh, like they'd finished filming, and he went off, uh, I think, New York or wherever to do stage uh, some stage play, mm. which he shaved his, shaved his head for, and then they had to get him back to do these reshoots. So that's why he had a wig on. <laughs> oh, I I don't remember that in the 
in the ending. I'll have to watch that again. I, next time. You just stymied me with that one. I didn't know that one either. Oh, really? I thought it was common knowledge, mm. but there you go. I guess I, I take notice of all these things too, too intently. <laughs> yep. Um, Jason's number four is Ferris Bueller's Day Off as well. You wear too much eye makeup. My sister wears too much. People think she's a whore. You don't want to talk about your problem? With you, are you serious? I'm serious. Blow yourself. All right. You want to know what's wrong? I know what's wrong. I just want to hear you say it. In a nutshell, I hate my brother. How's that? That's cool. Did you blow him away or something? No, not yet. See, I went home to confirm that the shithead was ditching school, and when I was there, a guy broke into the house. I called the cops, and they picked me up for making a phony phone call. What do you care if your brother ditches school? Why should he get to ditch when everybody else has to go? You could ditch. Yeah, I'd get caught. So you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught, is that it? Basically. It's uh, top of a lot of people's lists. Uh, Patrick's number four. Uh, he, he's going to agree with you, Shane. It's 1988, she's having a baby. Are you mad? Would you rather not talk? I'm fine. What do you want to talk about? You know. Kids. You want kids? Don't you? It's irreversible. So? I'm not in the mood for irreversible action right now. Let's go to sleep. Having our parents here has distorted everything. It's not a good time to talk serious. Go to sleep. If I tell you something, will you promise not to get mad? Promise you won't get mad. Tell me what it is. You have to promise you won't get mad. Okay, I promise I won't get mad. I stopped taking the pill three months ago. This film spoke to the future me in its time. The fear of being in a committed relationship and having kids was never more palatable than it was in this film. The man who always, the man who is always six degrees from me, Kevin Bacon, plays the lead character, Jake Briggs. Elizabeth, Govern, Elizabeth McGovern in her glorious girl next door heyday plays the loyal wife to uncertain Jake, who is questioning his wife, his life, and the choices he makes. The perfectly cast Alec Baldwin plays Jake's best friend and the constant devil on Jake's shoulder, Davis, who plays the playboy who doesn't want to grow up, but secretly envies everything Jake has. That cocksucker. Uh, <laughs> the film is a light-hearted comedy that has a very serious ending that speaks to every par expecting parents' fears and an under... Uh, an underappreciated gem from John Hughes that's worthy of a watch or a second go if you saw it in the 80s. So it sounds like he agrees with you completely, Shane. Well, he agreed with me with my number five, too. He had Ferris. I wonder if we're going to keep going like this. I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. But his synopsis, if anything, should hopefully make Chad watch this movie now because, yeah, 
Oh yeah, I'll def- I know it's sitting on our DVD shelf here, so I'll be able to watch it whenever I want. So I'll definitely grab it and watch it sometime. Yeah, totally agree with Patrick. It needs to be rewatched, and it's a gr- it's a gem. It's a great film. All right, Chad, what is your number three? My number three seems to be a popular title so far. It is, this was the one that was produced, written, and directed by John Hughes. It is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm so disappointed in Cameron. 20 bucks says he's sitting in his car debating about whether or not he should go out. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. Shit. And I always tell people, what more can I say since I've been 13 years old? I prided myself in taking days off from school and work. Um, nowadays, I call them mental health days. <laughs> Um, but I do all of this because of John Hughes in this movie. And I do it for one simple quote. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Period. End of story. Uh, my, my favorite scene in that is still when he's in the shower and he washes his privates and he puts his hand over the screen. It's so dumb. <laughs> yes, there's just... That's one of those movies, too. I, you just think about little things like him just dancing to, um, was it, I Dream a Genie? Yeah. Uh, I mean, just those little things, you they pop up in your head and you just have to laugh because there are so many cute little moments in this movie. Uh, when his sister Genie is in the house and there's a knock at the door, she opens it and it's uh, like a singing telegram of a nurse with flowers. And she slams the door just as she's about to swear. Very funny. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of great moments in Ferris. I mean, yes, I agree. It's probably one of those that hasn't aged as well as it probably should have or most people would think it has. But just like most of John Hughes' movies, there are enough of those moments that you'll never get out of your brain and you'll just laugh at instantaneously. Yeah. he's running and jumping fences at the end and then he stops because <laughs> there's two girls sunbaking and he introduces himself yeah stuff that, like that I, I i enjoy it's a perfect ferris bueller moment uh, yeah that's it and then we talked about on another podcast with our conspiracy theories where some people think that ferris didn't exist and it was all in cameron's head i don't know yep i always thought alan ruck is a very underrated actor too he was awesome in that movie as Cameron and then if you're a fan of the show Spin City later on uh, probably 10-15 years later he was just great on that show he has great comedic timing yeah he's very subtle in his humor yep I I remember him out of the blue and I've, I was like that's Alan Ruck when um, I first saw Speed he's one of the passengers on the bus that's correct uh, I always wondered why John Hughes never chose or casted Anthony Michael Hall in in that role. It would have, you know, it would have suited him. But not Cameron. Uh, Alan Ruck was great as Cameron, but I just thought Anthony Michael Hall, with the relationship he had with John Hughes, it's a wonder he wasn't cast. Yeah, I can't disagree because that would have fit his. I don't know if he would have had the same comedic timing with it that or. Pres- comedic presence is what I guess I want to say, not timing, but I don't know. Just, I agree. He would have fit Ferris pretty well. I think his uh, his style of humor is a little too energetic um, to play off of Ferris Bueller's, and I think that could be why. I think the fact that, uh, that the the guy they cast was, he was, his humor is just so much more subtle, and I think it worked better. And, uh, the, and Anthony Michael Hall, he probably would have uh, just taken away from it. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Shane, what's your number three? Uh, number three is planes, trains, and automobiles. Welcome to Marathon. May I help you? Yes. How may I help you? 
you can start by wiping that fucking dumbass smile off your rosy fucking cheeks. Then you can give me a fucking automobile, a fucking Datsun, a fucking Toyota, a fucking Mustang, a fucking Buick, four fucking wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of fucking nowhere with fucking keys to a fucking car that isn't fucking there. And I really didn't care to fucking walk down a fucking highway and across a fucking runway to get back here to have you smile at my fucking face. I want a fucking car right fucking now. Yeah, I see your rental agreement. I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're fucked. Uh, excellent movie. Again, another one of these little bit more serious roles, although, there, again, there are some really funny moments in this. It's got Steve Martin and John Candy at the top of their game. I've got to say, they're not just their connection and chemistry with each other on screen but it's just that their timing even when they're separated in certain scenes steve martin especially i I, and it touched my heart even as a you know as a younger person i was very very sad in many moments of this movie especially the end when the truth came out well it was a sad film in many ways yeah it was and uh, i love the little cameo from the start at the start by with kevin bacon and you know, I just—it was a great, it's a great film. Holds up. I still laugh at it when they're driving in the car, catches on fire is just hilarious. And when they're in bed, of course, uh, together and <laughs> wake up. I use that <laughs> line to this day. Those are. <laughs> I'm <pillows>. sure you <laughs> do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. They're not pillows. <laughs> you know, in the you're talking about the lines and. I know this isn't a top five movie for me, but I still love watching this movie because there's one line in the movie I use all the time myself. And it's um, when they're driving backwards or going the wrong way down the highway and the couple in the other car are yelling, you're going the wrong way. And they're like, (laughs) how do they know which way we're going? You know, it's (laughs) stupid little funny stuff like that that I'll use all the time because I just think it's a good joke. And when after they come to a screeching halt on the freeway, and uh, Steve Martin pulls his hands out of the dashboard, <laughs> and there's little marks. <laughs> yep. And, and it's this is I don't know what made me think of this. This is sort of fun, you know. I've sat here and said a couple times that his John Hughes's movies just make you stop and chuckle out of nowhere when you think about something from one of his movies. The scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where Steve Martin's character is thinking of John Candy's character as he's on the train home and just remembering the funny incidents they had. It's what we're doing here with his talking about his movies. It's we're just sitting here chuckling about stuff out of the blue and it's great. It reminds me of all that stuff. (laughs) And uh, Edie McGlurk has a scene in it when, Stephen Martin's trying to, he's trying to like hire a, a higher car. There's none left. Uh, and it is hilarious. Like, it's got so much swearing and profanity in it. It's That's hilarious. one of the best uses of the F-bomb in any movie. <laughs> exactly. Now, I just, I know even when I first saw it, I was probably too young for the demographic to enjoy this movie. It was more for an adult audience, I would have thought, back in the late 80s. I absolutely loved it then. I love it now. And how how comedy genius is it that they have a guy being a shower curtain ring salesman? Yeah. Who in the hell would have thought of that? Uh, and I've got to make note of how great, again, that John Hughes sets up his soundtrack. There's just a variety of different songs on this from all different decades, and it works, and it's great. Yeah, this one was just barely out of my top five. This one came in at number six, and uh, okay, and but it, it like I said, they're so interchangeable. These films that uh, there's no reason why I would be a um, that I couldn't have put it on the list. It, it's a great yeah. movie too. 
I agree oh, with it, you there. It's it's so hard to make five. Uh, I'm sure we've all got honourable mentions, but it's, it was really hard to come up with five. There's too many good ones. They're all good. Uh, let's see what. My number three is The Breakfast Club. A naked blonde walks into a bar with a poodle under one arm and a two-foot salami under the other. She lays the poodle on the table. Bartender says, I suppose you won't be needing a drink. Naked lady says, on my pencil. God damn it! What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. And, uh... I think, uh, was it, Shane A., did you mention that uh, in a, our other podcast about fan theories that uh, that Ferris Bueller was supposed to be the fifth kid uh, in detention in The Breakfast Club but didn't show up and so Ali Sheedy's character just came in? That's right. Well, it's explained in the film that Ali Sheedy's character uh, just turns up. She had nowhere else to go and she just went for the day. And when the teacher, uh, the, Paul Gleason, comes in at the start, you know, he's got five people he just walks around gives out five pieces of paper um but it, ferris bueller just didn't show up that day should have been there yeah but that's a great subtle film as well of you know different types of personalities of kids learning that they're really not that different from one another um except for judd nelson who was an abused little little boy but um uh, <laughs> but no i i think that it it's a great film that uh, I know a lot of people would uh, even say that number three is shorting the film in terms of uh, John Hughes's best films um, but it's definitely uh, one of his best yeah I'll save my comments for later okay. <laughs> yeah I'll, I've got more to say on it too later in okay. my list but subtle Chris I'm, I'm surprised you use that word there's a lot of scenes that aren't that subtle including what you mentioned about oh. Judd Nelson's background and, I mean, the way that Emilio Estevez's character, what he did to Brian's friend mm-hmm. to get into detention. I meant more of, like, the humor. It's not like a 16 Candles, what's happening, oh, right. that stuff sort of, uh, you know, in your face. Or <laughs> even the the playfulness of Ferris Bueller, you know, where, where it's a day off and they're going to go to the Chicago Cubs game while, uh, you know, while the principal's looking for him. Um, which actually is a great scene where he asks them what the score is. Yeah, that is, I agree. That's one of the great things. What's the score? Nothing to nothing. Who's winning? The Bears. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Bears are football and not baseball? No, they were baseball. Or they're oh, right. The Bears they're are football and they were watching game. baseball, yeah, which is incredibly funny. Yeah, Sorry, uh, being an Aussie, I know a little bit about baseball and NFL, but not a lot. But I still thought that scene was funny because I got the gist. Well, um, the Cubs haven't won a World Series since uh, Australia was part of the British Empire. <laughs> uh, didn't they win this in Back to the Future too? They won a series? Uh, yes. It was supposed to happen last year in Back to the Future too. Ah, uh, okay. But, yeah, sorry, Chris. With the subtle, I know what you mean now, with the humor, mm-hmm. it, it yeah, is that's very... It's not in your face. It's just little things that happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's definitely one of his darker films uh, for the reasons you mentioned. And I'm sure you'll go into when you pick it. Um, Laurie's number three is a film that I have not seen in a very, very long time. And that's Mr. Mom. Room service, madame. Oh, thanks. But uh, Ron gave me this tuna presentation to do and I'm really way behind. Well, you got to eat something, honey. Well, if I wanted something to eat, Jack, I would have come down and had something to eat with you and your girlfriends. All right. Let's get into it. Get into what, Jack? Get into this. The house is a mess, Jack. The kids are a mess, Jack. You're a mess, Jack. I'd leave anything else out? Want to talk about the beer? All right. 
The beard's in its transitional stage right now, that's all. When it comes in, it's gonna look great. It's gonna look like a movie star, uh, what's his name? Orson Welles? No, I'm... Oh, Orson Welles. <laughs> oh, I get it, fat jokes, right? That's real uh, funny. Yeah, I put on a couple of pounds. So what? Come on, what else do you have? You wanna talk about this shirt for a second, Jack? All right. You've been wearing this shirt around the house for about two weeks now. It can walk around by itself. Why don't you retire that thing to the Dry Cleaning Hall of Fame, huh? Because it's a comfortable shirt. Jack, take a look at yourself. You've really thrown in the towel, honey. Good choice. I yes. remember seeing that in the, in the cinema myself. That was a... I was probably too young to see it and didn't fully understand it at that point in time, but I've always found it to be a very funny film. Well, I remember seeing it a lot because it was on the HBO loop, but I don't think I really under... Uh, uh, really got it because as a little boy, you don't really care about uh, being uh, raising kids. So I, I think that one went over my head. I never saw it at the cinema. Uh, I think it was would have been on VHS would have, when I was a teenager working at the video shop. I remember the cover. It was a popular renter and uh, it was a good movie. I saw it recently, maybe a year ago now uh, on pay television here and it's funny. I guess a lot of the old Michael Keaton movies came back after Birdman. You look at like they started becoming on TV again. <laughs> Multiplicity and Mr. Mom and Gung Ho. You know, was people... that out? Oh, I love well, Gung Ho is great. In Australia, though, it was called Working Class Man. Had a different name. Mm. Um, but yeah, Ron Howard directed that too, which was good. But uh, yeah, all those movies I remember coming back out last year because of Birdman and. Um, I saw Mr. Mum again then after a long time, and it, it holds up. It's funny. It's got some good bits in it. That's the thing about John Hills, Hughes' films. You know, the, there's not a whole lot of special effects or anything, so the only thing that really gets dated is, is probably the clothing and maybe the songs, the soundtrack. But all the themes are going to be relevant because he deals with relationships and coming of age a lot and and those sort of things. So I think that most of his films are going to hold up fairly well. Yeah, the most special effects he would have ever had would have been Weird Science, I assume. I can't think of any others. Yeah, yeah, Chet, yeah I mean... Chet's poo pile is looking pretty dated these days. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> uh, Baby's Day Out, which uh, he wrote, that had some pretty cool special effects with the, the baby out on the ledge of the building and all that, I guess. Now, my one favorite part of Mr. Mom, I don't know why, is... It's always stuck in my head was um, Michael Keaton's, I think his name was Jack in the movie. He had gotten himself really fat and lazy and grew a beard and all that and wore the same <laughs> shirt all the time. And he finally decided, hey, I'm going to change myself. And he shaves the beard off and goes to throw his flannel shirt into the uh, fire. And his little boy carried his whoopee around the whole time. And the little boy was not willing to give up his security blanket or his whoopee and they had to have a talk about, you know, getting rid of it. And I always thought that was great because kids get attached to their security blankets. And Jack saw the same thing in himself. He had to get rid of his security blankets and quit being comfortable. It, it was made the same year, 1983, as National Lampoon's Vacation. And it's just, just come to me that it, they both featured uh, scenes of running to the theme of Chariots of Fire. They both got those scenes in them, which I think's funny. That's a good call. Terry Gar is in it too, of course. I like her. She still pops up in a few movies now. I like Terry Gar a lot. Yeah. Um, Jason's number three is The Breakfast Club. What are we having? Uh, it's just your standard regular lunch, I guess. Milk? Soup. I can read. P, B, and J with the crusts cut off. Well, Brian, this is a very nutritious lunch. All the food groups are represented. Did your mom marry Mr. Rogers? Uh, no, Mr. Johnson. So we got two uh, uh, votes for Breakfast Club as the number three. Patrick's number three is National Lampoon's Vacation. Thank you. 
Sweetie, do you hear that rattle? Where's it coming from? It beats the heck out of me. I've been looking for it ever since we left. It's driving me crazy. God, Dad, check it out behind you. Oh, shoot. Now what have we done? Will you hold my purse? Huh? Just hold my purse. Officer, what's the problem? Get out of the car. I don't think I was speeding. Was I weaving or something? Shut your mouth, sir. You know, if I wasn't in uniform, I'd split your skull with the butt of this revolver faster than you could say police brutality. Well, officer, whatever it is I've done, I'm sure I can explain. Explain this, you son of a bitch. Oh, my God. You know what the penalty for animal cruelty is in this state? No, sir, I don't. Well, it's probably pretty stiff. He says Hughes wrote the screenplay that was based on his own short story for this film. Although not traditionally thought of as a Hughes film, this is the film that made John Hughes and allowed him to write and direct 16 Candles the very next year. This film introduced us to the Griswold family, Clark, Ellen, Rusty, and Audrey, and the family of misfits living in a trailer, um, who would haunt our movie theaters for three sequels and one reboot, hoping to capture the magic of this film. This movie is the ultimate road film and captured the reality of every family trip, whatever can go wrong will. When I saw this film in 1984, because my parents wouldn't take me to see an R-rated film in the theaters but would allow me to freely watch it at home on VHS when they wouldn't be judged for their lack of parenting. <laughs> That's very nice. Um, uh, this film reminded me of my own family doing a cross-country trip in 1981. My dad didn't kill any pets, and no family members died along the way, but I distinctly remembered that constant obsession of wanting to be out of the car. I could relate to these characters, and now that I'm an adult, I have learned to fly wherever we go. Thank you, John Hughes. Lesson learned. Well, Patrick said there was uh, the three sequels, which there were, but there was a spin-off movie. There was a Cousin Ed- Eddie movie that went direct to video, uh, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. And that featured the actress who played the original Audrey as well. Did they, uh, yeah, I- did they flee to Canada for their lives and then <laughs> make dirty movies? Uh, Oh, as far as I know, I think Randy Quaid went nuts after he appeared in Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> yeah, because he was he was supposed to be the star of that movie. Remember, he was the centerpiece. Uh, was he? I didn't know that. No, that's why he got mad at the producers of Brokeback Mountain because he thought he was okay. the he was the one who had all the star power for it. Well, he still still did an impressive job in that film, but. I think after that, his career spiraled. Exactly. I would be surprised if he makes anything else now. But never say never. I've, I've never seen that uh, Christmas Vacation 2 spin-off, though. I just thought I'd mention it. I remember when it was released straight to DVD. Well, that's the midway point of our two-part LTMR hindsight review of the top five John Hughes films. Join us in just 10 days for the exciting conclusion as we pick back up, starting with our number twos and countdown all the way to number one. Thanks once again for listening to our little podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. Either on Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including this podcast as well as the number number two review, Movie House Memories, Mail Bonding, and Filmhouse Hustlers. Additionally, Shane A. writes regularly for CindyUnleashed.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Movie underscore Analyst, where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews. Well, that does it for this episode of LTMR Hindsight. Until next time, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Chad. And I'm Shane. 
Uh, I want to thank Patrick, Laurie, and Jason for giving us their top five lists as well. That's it for this episode. We have to get out of here, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. All films, all names and sounds of any film characters and any other film-related items are registered trademarks and are copyrights of their respective trademark and are copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC, unless otherwise noted.